I'm your host from Indented, Kryn Hanald. This recording is coming to you live from Fort Howard Hall at the Widener Center for the Performing Arts at UW-Green Bay. Our experts for this episode are Dr. Nesvet and Dr. Van Sloten, both English and Women's and Gender Studies professors from UW-Green Bay and the UW-Green Bay Manitowoc campus. In this episode, they help us work through gender topics within Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley's Frankenstein. Hope you enjoy it. All right, hello, good evening. I'm your host, Kryn Hanald, and... We're kind of just going to be talking a little bit about Frankenstein and going into some gender topics on it. So I wanted to start off with a broad topic uh, question about Frankenstein for Dr. Nesbet. What's cool about Frankenstein? What's cool about Frankenstein? Oh my goodness, what is not cool about <laughs> Frankenstein? I, I think it's really cool that it's a novel about responsibility right, about all kinds of responsibility, about parents being responsible for their children, about people being responsible for the actions they take in the world, about the extent to which you can become responsible for making yourself, right? So, which is wonderful because it was written by a woman in a society where she was told simultaneously, you have no agency, you have control over anything because you're not responsible. You know, this is the presumed incompetence. Um, situation and whatever goes wrong is your fault, and in some ways that's that's kind of where we still are. Yeah, I would yeah. say that's true. <laughs> um, so what did what did Mary Shelley read? Okay, I, that is really neat because I think she was she was just one of the most well-read writers that I have ever read, which is even more incredible if you think about the fact that she had no formal education and that she died in 1851, right before the point when um, mass literacy and publishing exploded and there were suddenly lots and lots more books and periodicals. So she read all sorts of genres. Her, her reading was truly interdisciplinary. I have recently read journal articles about what she did with books about medicine and geology and Plutarch and Milton. And I mean, she, she read everything. She also read lots of other writers who were women, you know, a good sister of other writers um, in that sense. And um, something that she frequently did that her father taught her to do, actually, was read two books at once. I'm not kidding. So she would have two books, and she'd be reading them at once. And this sounds like the worst kind of multitasking that you're not supposed to do, so that you, uh, you know, because we, we supposedly we can't learn that way. Her father felt that reading two books at once helped you to compare them. So I have tried to do this, but she was much better at this than... Um, than than I am. And I also want to add some, st can I, if I can talk about, you know, when you when you research, you kind of have to narrow it. She had these long reading lists that she has one in her diary where she writes down everything that she read, and then she put a mark if Percy Shelley also read it, because, you know, they shared books that way. Sometimes they read out loud to each other. So we know a lot of what she read. Not everything, though, because there was some stuff that you weren't supposed to read, and therefore it was dangerous to write it down. Even in your own, you know, in your own diary, because who, you know, who knows who's going to see that. So, I mean, one of the things that I've written about is the fact that she read, uh, among other things, banned erotica. So she read a French. She she could read in French. She read she read multilingually. Um, she read a French writer named um, Louvet de Couvre, and she also prob um, he is in her reading list. So That's very bold. But she also probably either read or heard synopses from someone who had read the writings of 
Donatien Anton Francade, Marquis de Sade, or Citizen Sade, as he wanted to be called, after the, the French Revolution, which is something that, until very recently, women were really, I mean, men were not supposed to read that stuff. Byron had a copy anyway, because he didn't care. But, um, and he was her friend, of, of course, but women really, really weren't supposed to read Sod, that there are myths about, you know, there's a woman who reads Sod and then she goes mad and becomes rebellious and becomes a monster herself um, in all kinds of ways. So I think it's interesting she not only read Sod, but she has a character named Justine, who is Sod's most famous character, who is pretty much like Justine in, in Sod, where she's this eternal victim who thinks the world is going to turn out okay until the end when she realizes that, you know, that it won't, and who, who exists as this kind of indictment of the way that patriarchy doesn't, you know, reward virtues. So, and and the, the, the male critical establishment has always said, well, she kind of accidentally wrote about Saad without having read it, because, you know, she was a woman, and she couldn't have done that. Can I, can I read a little bit about yeah. this? Okay, this, this makes me so angry. This is from a classic of romanticism, Mario Praz's The Romantic Agony. From, it was written in Italian in the 1930s, and as late as 2013, there are still critics saying, like, this is brilliant stuff. You have to read this if you're interested in romanticism. Okay. Like Mrs. Radcliffe, other authoresses also adopted the persecuted woman as a character, but there be not, may be nothing more in this than another of the many manifestations of feminine invent imitativeness, as the literary tradition has been the monopoly of man at any rate up till the present, it is natural that women writers should slavishly adopt in their works the masculine point of view. In Mrs. Shelley's Frankenstein, 1817, that's not right. We find an innocent woman accused of murdering a child, this is Justine, thanks to the infernal guile of a sort of satanic homunculus manufactured by Frankenstein, and the innocent woman imprisoned, tried, and executed is called, by an odd coincidence, Justine, like Saad's unhappy, virtuous heroine. Several more examples from her later novels that we're not talking about today. All Mrs. Shelley did here was to provide a passive reflection of some of the wild fantasies which, as it were, hung in the about her, but there was a different significance in her husband's choice of the story of, I'll leave it there. Okay, well, uh, that was awesome. <laughs> so um, speaking of gender, uh, I wanted to go on to a question for Dr. Van Sluten. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some of the gender issues that you see in Frankenstein? Oh, the list is long, so I picked out just a few things to talk about, but I want to mm -hmm. start by talking about the way that masculinity is constructed in the novel. I think it's really interesting. Some critics have talked about the ways that the men in the novel avoid heterosexual relationships and sex in general and instead have this longing for deep affection with other men, right? So I think if we were going to perform kind of a queer reading of the text, there would be a lot of material for that. I'm thinking particularly about Walton, who is so smitten with Victor, right? This is his friend that he has longed for when he's, when he's at sea and He's really just heartbroken when he dies, right? We'll talk a little bit more about that later, maybe. But in terms of thinking about women, there's a lot of interesting things going on. There's sort of an absence of women, particularly mothers, right? But we can think about how different critics explain this. And so one popular way of doing this is to think about drawing on Shelley's own biography, right? And thinking about her own absent mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, who died when Shelley was just a baby. Um, we can talk about Shelley's own experience as a mother and losing a child right after it was born. So a lot of maternal anxiety. We can talk a little bit, too, about the way that 
womanhood was constructed in the 18th and 19th centuries particularly, but also still holding strong today, right? This idea that men are in the public sphere in the world, women are in the private sphere of the home, and that's where they get their power, right? So one way we can think about Frankenstein is that Victor Frankenstein is kicking women out of the one place where they have power and legitimacy, right? By taking away their reproductive and creative functions. I would say that kind of a caveat to that would be um, a feminist critique of that idea that we don't want to reduce women only to their biological functions. That has happened often, and it's really problematic, <laughs> right? So I think there's a lot of interesting gender dynamics in the novel. I think she kind of knew that, too, yeah. that, there is a di you know, that there is a difference between um, reproduction as a metaphor for creativity and, and women's creativity being reproduction that she has another, I can't remember if it's a letter or a journal or something like that where she writes to another woman. It was uh, Lee Hunt's, oh I remember now, it was to, it was to Lee, Lee Hunt's wife, um, that a woman is not a farm, is not a field that's supposed to, to bring forth a harvest. I think that means she understood that's not what women's intellectual creativity is. Yeah. Yeah. I love that line, and especially because, um, what is it, the, that moment in the book where, is it Elizabeth that wishes for Frankenstein's brother to be a farmer? Yes. Right, that yes. that's the ideal life, is yeah. to be a farmer. It seems like she got that from, <laughs> right. like she got that from Voltaire. Voltaire and Candide, yeah, Candide. yeah for sure. Yeah. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about how the novel presents and challenges uh, patriarchy? Oh, yes, I would love to talk about that. Um, so I think some of the yeah. things, um, to think about to start with are making sure that the patriarchy has a clear definition. And I draw on uh, sociologist Alan Johnson's definition, and he talks about society is patriarchal to the degree to which it is focused on male dominance, male-centeredness, male identification, and an obsession with control. So I think that anyone who's read the novel can already start spinning through a list of examples in their head of those kind of things, right? But I will draw out a couple of them. I think one thing we can think about is just how like self-centered Victor Frankenstein is. Like I finished rereading the novel and I said to my partner, like, Victor Frankenstein is the worst. And I think one telling example of this is on his wedding night. He's so convinced that the creature is going to kill him, he never even occurs to him that it's Elizabeth who is in danger, right? And to me, that is the perfect example of this patriarchal male-centeredness. Yeah, I would agree with that. I also read a very interesting article about Frankenstein and suicide lately that says that he thinks that because he wants the creature to kill him. Ah. It's like Raskolnikov, kind of. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, they do. One of the things I, I was thinking about in, in the novel is by the end, like, they're so bound up in one another, you know, that mm -hmm. they're, they're having this epic running on sleds, on ships, right, <laughs> kind of chasing after each other, that they, are, they have that, that really strong... You can kind of hear chariots of fire in the background, <laughs> can't you? Yeah. At that point, it's gone beyond rage, um, <laughs> and it's something more like love, I think. But I think another point that I wanted to make about patriarchy is that Shelley sets up this hyper-patriarchal world to show us just how destructive it is, right? What happens when 
women don't have power, what happens when men try to take the power in their own hands and when um, they try to move away from things like family and love and affection, right? So the feminist scholar in me is like, oh, that's sort of reinforcing gender stereotypes that I'm not super comfortable with. But at the other hand, we can think about during Mary Shelley's time, she was really making a radical claim there, right, about the way that patriarchy is, is destructive and damages everyone, right? Do you think it matters that just the specific generation that she was, that she's born in 1797, and she writes this, the, the first version of it anyway, finishes it in 1818, and the, the Napoleonic Wars had gone on for most of her lifetime, and there were, there were young men who, were, who died in those, on all sides who weren't born when they started. I mean, so does that matter that the men in her society are living in this state of constant war? Yeah, I think so too, because, you know, war is another perfect expression of patriarchy, right? An obsession with power and control and male dominance. Where can we turn for some comfort and some nurturance in a different way, right? And I think, you know, the creature is trying to do that, (laughs) but Victor Frankenstein, the ultimate patriarch, is denying him any Um, access to a world that looks different. Um, There's also one more thing and then we can move on, but uh, there's some interesting criticism that talks about um, the DeLacy family as a a model or perhaps a a utopia of more of a feminist ideal, right? That the roles that the people have in that family are pretty equal. Everyone is working to sustain that family unit. They're Mm -hmm. in exile, they're refugees, but of course, you know, that doesn't end well, and that no, is not sustained, violence, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. right. How, how do critics like that explain his violence? Because I, I like that's the point when I start worrying about Safi, actually. Right. Right. Yeah. Is she in danger? Right. <laughs> um, well, one of the critics that I was reading earlier today actually was talking mm-hmm. about if there had been a mother mm-hmm. present, she would have welcomed the creature and modeled this kind of love and affection, and then, right, probably would have been a tempering influence you on believe Felix. That? Well, no. Okay, I don't either. <laughs> yeah. No, because, yeah. I, you know, I mean, Agatha is pretty <laughs> compassionate and, you know, a mother yeah. in training, right? So she has those values, but she's totally freaked out as well. And you know that Agatha's going to be a mother in training because she's, she's the sister third wheel, yeah. and she's at least the third sister third wheel. Yeah in this novel and the other two really are like literally mothering their younger brothers right we didn't talk about sort of the creepy grooming that women receive in this novel yeah right? at least the women in this novel have no idea if they're supposed to be daughters mothers wives mistresses or all of the above right yeah um, thank you guys um so <laughs> with the last few minutes going off of that i wanted to ask who do you think is the real monster in the story who do we think is the real monster in the story? Mm-hmm. Okay, there is this meme that I'm trying to remember right now, which is really cool <laughs> about this, that says that, the, let, let me see if I can get this right, uh, knowing that, thinking that the creature, Frankenstein, is not uh, the same as the creature is knowledge, but thinking that Frankenstein is the monster is wisdom. Uh-huh. <laughs> nice, that's deep. <laughs> A pretty great meme. Yeah, I have a lot of sympathy for the creature. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, 
Rebecca talked about how Shelley read Milton, and I can't help but think of uh, Satan in Paradise Lost. I remember reading that as an undergraduate and being like, he seems like a nice guy, <laughs> right? At least to a certain yeah. point. You have a lot of empathy for him that he's been harmed by multiple mm -hmm. systems and, and is acting out. And I have the same sort of reaction to the creature. and. Yeah, and like I already said, I think Victor Frankenstein is totally the worst. Yeah, I think it also depends on wh which version you're looking at. That in 18, 1831, it gets more complicated because Clerval, one of the, vi the victims, you know, the nice guy friend, nice guy, right? He's, he's going to go use his, his knowledge of Indian languages in India. This would be probably for the East India Company because he's going to London to talk things out before he does that. And the creature kills him first. And if you think about the colonial wars that were going on at the time because, because of the East India Company's presence in India, you, you might start to think about, oh, that's really complicated. I mean, the creature didn't know that that's what Clerval was or what, what he was intending to do, but... But Shelley knew, right? Shelley knew, yep. And another example of how people are implicated in patriarchy, whether they, they want to be or, or know it or yep. not. Yeah. Just by participating in the economy. Right. <laughs> Which is where we are today, right? Yep. <laughs> all right. Well, that's about the, all the time we have. Thank you guys for having a discussion about Frankenstein. Um, hope everyone has a great night. Thank you. We hope you all had fun. To get involved with English department happenings, visit uwgb.edu English. We have a calendar of events, so check it out to get involved.